Uh, McGon is professor of history and director of the Institute for Global Interdisciplinary <laughs> Studies. He's the former director of the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies. Maybe I should do what I do in class and just say, you're going to have a test on this. McGon <laughs> uh, received his doctorate from Howard University in African Studies. Um, before coming to Villanova, he taught at the United Nations African Institute for Economic Development and Planning in Dakar, Senegal, and elsewhere. Uh, he has uh, 26 articles that he's published, and also seven books. Uh, the most recent books are The Political Economy of Healthcare in Senegal, which was published in 2007, Conceptualizing and Reconceptualizing Africa, the Construction of African Historical Identity, um, which was published in 2002, and Race and the Writing of History, Riddling the Sphinx, which was published in 2000. So uh, we're delighted to have Magan uh, give us a geopolitical historical context for the Thank you, Megan. I'm um, at the podium facing several problems. Um, the first of which is um, following Frank Galgano, who <laughs> is known for his lucidity, his clarity, the structure of his argument, and all the rest. The other one is, is that I tend to sit in functions like this and absorb things like a sponge, which always alters the nature of my remarks. I'm, I'm learning things all together. So um, some of the stuff that I have to say is not going to have a Frank's clarity. I'm making that point clear to you right now. Uh, and it changes, um, it changes within the framework of the context that we're talking about. One of the things I want, want to do is go back to, um, to Barbara's um, opening remark and to focus on one of the things that, uh, that Barbara brought up that um, brings us all together here. He said, we assess a certain kind of, kind of importance to Haiti. The question becomes out of that, why is Haiti important? And so in talking about um, the importance of Haiti, I need to begin by um, giving you a couple of uh, caveats as to how I approach this. One of the things that becomes important about thinking about the importance of Haiti is the way in which we as American or Americans and then as Westerners regard Haitians and the people of the Caribbean Basin, those people who are not, in fact, North Americans. Uh, we have a certain contextual lens. We should think about contextual lenses, though, but the singular contextual lens through which we view Haiti at that particular, at this particular moment, and it's what I call a contemporary lens. Our focus on on Haiti is a focus that might be, in fact, regenerated and refocused, but it's refocused in the context of the contemporary. We think that Haiti has just sprung full blown in the present moment. That's the lens through which we view it. And in that, it seems to imply that how we see Haiti is as a conjuncture between what is natural, Frank's presentation, and then what is inevitable, inevitable in terms of the consequences of the natural. Um, that kind of 
conjunction is a conjunction that leads to conclusions about Haitian poverty, the poverty of the spaces that make up Haiti, and of course, the poverty of the Haitian people, the people in question. I want to challenge this. And the challenge goes back also to um, Barbara and the way in which she ended her open remarks by using Jared Diamond. And I, before I go into Jared Diamond, I guess I need to, need to spell out my biases because I'm a, a I teach, a, well, putatively I've been told that I teach history. Um, I'm much more inclined towards historiography, which is the question of how history is created. And in that begins my critique of, of Jared Diamond, but it also says that I need to state my own biases as I talk to people about this. So the biases and the context of the kind of critique that I give is based on the fact that I'm a former development officer, uh, based on the fact that I'm a former policy analyst, based on the fact that I'm, I think kind of obviously though, Chi-Chi and I go through questioning I'm a black guy, um, based on the fact that I'm a political economist and based on the fact that I'm an historian of the Atlantic world and the African diaspora. Um, those are all biases. I want you to know, biases, they give me access to grind. I'm here to grind some of them in terms of talking about Haiti, our perceptions of Haiti, and our approaches to how Haiti might be cured or whatever we want, we want to perceive that we might do with Haiti. Um, going back to Jared Diamond, is this notion um, where Diamond comes across and he gives this idea of the way in which we think about Haiti in the contemporary sense. And in thinking about Haiti in the contemporary sense, one of the things that Diamond says to us is that Haiti's problem is a problem of governance. It's a problem of what Haitians have done to their space in relationship to that particular work and his other work, is that Jared Diamond tends to be, while wildly popular in terms of the public that he serves, also wildly ahistorical. So my job here is to, in fact, do what Frank talked about he has instructed his former cadets in. That they can not, in fact, make <laughs> geography, but they can make history. And Haitians have made history, and that's part of their problem. Um, and that in making that history, one of the responses to the historical dynamics of Haitian history making is that by design, Haiti is the poorest country in the hemisphere. And I'm saying that purposely, by design, by historical design. We also need to understand this, that within the great overview of roughly a bit more than 200 years of history as Haiti, Haiti has been the linchpin to the historical dynamism of the entire Western Hemisphere. The United States not notwithstanding. Haiti has been the thing around which historical dynamism in this hemisphere has centered. So having said that, let me go to something that Sue 
pointed out to me. Um, Sue asked me early on to give you um, something to read. And I said, well, look, this is an educational gathering. I'll do what I normally do. I'll you know, give you a PDF, and we'll print it out. And then Sue said that the powers of technology, uh, commerce, capitalism said that there are copyright infringements even for this gathering. So most of you may not have seen the uh, article that I supplied by Reinhardt uh, on Haiti. That article um, gives us an opening, and it's an opening that we all need to take into account if we think about Haiti in terms of the development process. And I'm going to begin there by, by saying this. When I was a development officer, um, the groups that I worked with, and I also worked in conjunction with CRS, which was a, a happy relationship. We believed in one thing exclusively in terms of doing development. We believed in something that was called back in those days, and this is, this is 30 years ago. Um, back in those days that we called the baseline. If you didn't have the baseline, you couldn't do any work. And the baseline, simply put, was you needed to have the history of the people that you were involved with, and you needed to involve those people in, in fact, developing projects that they were the owners of. Simply put, we got into trouble with people from USAID at the top, well, the World Bank and others, all the way down to other non-governmental organizations, because we could walk in and talk about successful projects, but the success was simple. It was about history. Reinhardt allows me to open this to talk about a couple of things that I need to do. And that's to be like Frank and to say, there is some rhyme or reason to what I'm doing. Here I want to do three things. I want to talk about, beginning with Reinhardt, what, about what Haiti doesn't mean. And then, secondly, I want to use someone that I really am fond of as a historian, a great historian, um, to begin with, but several other historians, Franklin Knight, to illustrate what Haiti does mean and what it might have meant. And then finally, I want to do the historical dimensions of that meaning in terms of how we might recast the notion of thinking about for lack of a better term, redeveloping Haiti, or participating with Haitians in their redevelopment. So that takes me to Reinhardt's article, and just simply one thing about the baseline. <clears throat> Reinhardt tells us why we don't know what Haiti means. And what Reinhardt does for us is he provides a historiographical analysis of why most of us don't know anything about Haiti. We don't know anything about Haiti. And his argument is summed up in terms of what I call racialized historiography. Remember, I'm a black guy, okay? Racialized historiography. In most U.S. history texts, the kind that are used in high schools, there's scant mention of Haiti. If there is mention of Haiti, it is no mention of Haiti in terms of the ways in which the Haitian experience might in fact have changed the entire 
I'll use the word, complexion of the Western Hemisphere. Haiti is written off as either being a rebellion, a plantation society that was once owned by the French, etc. and so on. If you are a, st a student of Jared Diamond, this is exactly Jared Diamond's intro to it. It was once French, and now this is what it is. There is no explanation of what having been once French means to the Haitian population, meant to the Haitian population as a historical dynamic. So here, the thing that's important about Reinhardt is that Reinhardt says that the reason that we have no understanding of the meaning of Haiti is because Haiti, for most of us, in terms of contemporary Western historiography, has been written out. That brings us to point two. How do we give meaning to Haiti? And one of the ways we give meaning to Haiti is to ask why Haiti was written out. Well, the short of the answer is, is because the Haitian experiment was, in fact, at the turn of the 19th century, so, and this, I'm using this in a good sense, so catastrophic that it changed the very notion of the dynamics of enlightenment thought and what it might mean to be a free and self-sustaining people in not simply the Western Hemisphere, but the world. So this is Franklin Knight. And Franklin Knight brings us to this by saying that the Haitian Revolution was, in fact, the most thorough case study of revolutionary change anywhere in the history of the modern world. Anywhere within the history of the modern world. He's saying, for those of you who are Americans, forget that. It doesn't even count. What you did was a little bit like reform. And for those of you at the other extreme, Bolsheviks, no. And he's saying that within the context of understanding the political philosophy that girded the very nature of what we think the modern world is. This is Enlightenment theory. Enlightenment theory brings us notions of, you know, Locke, Rousseau, Hobbes, liberty, freedom, property, race, racism, slavery, capitalism, and in that, the Haitian Revolution, the thing that is hardly mentioned in U.S. textbooks, the Haitian Revolution reversed the entire course of those dynamics and made all the powers that surrounded Haiti and those who would be revolutionaries think the entire revolutionary process in one very distinct way. That distinct way was, in fact, for those who were powerful to crush or to attempt to crush, and I say attempt to crush, over and over again in the most sustained fashion, the emergent Haitian revolution and the change in the entire socio-political economic structure of the Caribbean Basin. And the most sustained operative in that was the United States. There are others. At the very beginning, there are the French, of course. There 
are the Spanish and the English, and then there are the Americans who take over from that with a series of doctrines that are presaged before the Haitian Revolution by Jefferson in Notes on Virginia. Jefferson told us what exactly would happen if there was a, such a thing as a Haitian Revolution. And then Monroe indicated that there should be doctrinal notions written into American foreign policy, the Monroe Doctrine, that would in fact justify, rationalize American intervention in America's hemisphere, but pointed directly at the Caribbean. So here within this framework, by the time we get to the 20th century, we have a series of events that place America at the forefront of the kind of historical relationship, the relationship that is melded by human beings that can change, in fact, the very dynamics of a Haitian political economy. In 1804, from 1804 to the culmination <coughs> 15 years later of struggle by the Haitians, when the French sued for peace, the Americans backed up a French demand which would in fact structure the nature of Haitian political economy for the next two centuries. And they simply did it in this way. The French were soundly defeated. As they retreated from Hispaniola, from what was to become Haiti, the American government said this to the Haitians. If you wish to have international recognition, then you, as the victors, as the victors, will pay the French government an indemnity of 150 million French francs. I, I, you know, I should have had one of, you know, one of my brilliant students who can do the economy of thinking about what 150 million French francs in the 19th century meant at that particular moment in time. But clearly, think about buying a third of a country for six million dollars, and then think about what 150 million French francs might have meant in the same moment. This set the course for what the Haitian political economy was going to look like. And so this goes back to my first remark that Haiti is in fact the poorest country in the hemisphere by historical design. It's not an act of nature. It is not some point of chance. It is in fact a political economic piece of reason. Now, if we were to take that back to Jefferson and understand what Jefferson is thinking about in Notes on Virginia, what Jefferson was thinking about as the governor of Virginia as he looked at a growing population of black people who did not fit the political economic structure of the Virginia state, then Haiti becomes clear. Haiti emerging in the 19th century for Jefferson became pretty much what we see Haiti to be today. It is a dumping ground. A dumping ground for the problems of the West, whether they are perceptual or real. The perceptual notion could be this. 
that we could look at the Caribbean and we could talk about the backwardness of these nations and then we could call, to point to Haiti and use Haiti as the prototype for everything that illustrated the extreme example of this. The substantive case for Jefferson and his fellow Virginians and later on almost six decades from Jefferson's pinning of notes on Virginia, actually more like eight decades, is the notion of what do you do with people of color who do not fit the political economic model. And the political economic model that Haiti challenged was a model of capitalism that was driven by racialized slavery. In Jefferson's Virginia, the question was what would you do with a huge and rapidly growing population of manumitted black people. And his answer was clear. Ship them to Haiti. They could solve our problems. Haiti can solve this problem for us as a dumping ground. Of course, the notions of what Haiti could do as a dumping ground also pose other problems. The political economy of the Western Hemisphere and of the modern world, based on a racialized slavery, meant that the rise of a republic of ex-slaves posed considerable risk for political economies that were based on slavery. Hence, the need to try to, in fact, strangle the baby in its crib. Numerous interventions, embargoes, the fact that recognition that had been promised in the early 19th century did not come until 60 years later, and a decade before that was the initiation of another 60 years of gunboat diplomacy on the part of the American government, an extension of the Monroe Doctrine, which would in fact lead to the invasion, or as we like to think of it, the intervention of American troops into Haiti proper that would last for 19 years. Now, the Americans claimed that they structured roads, they built schools, they provided stable governments, they did all kinds of good things. One American who was right there on the ground, a hero of mine, in fact. Great name, too. General Smedley Butler. <laughs> Retired. United States Marine Corps. Commissioner of Police. City of Philadelphia. Wrote a great book in 1935 entitled, War is a Racket. We might think about Halliburton there, okay? In that sense, writing in 1935 in Common Sense, Butler made this statement. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenue in. This was a notion of what was going on here. So then in the course of Haitian history, from that period on, through interventions, 13 coups, 
corrupt governments, Europeans and Americans were winking a blind eye to the kinds of things that were occurring there. And when we think about what Frank was saying about land tenure, well, in terms of promoting issues of civil governance, rule of law, that was hardly the case for those interested parties in relationship to the Haitian dilemma. So when you think about the notion that Haiti posed a serious threat to what was then a nascent global political economic structure, then one can begin to at least, if not envision, imagine the stakes which were attached to the notion of Haiti's success. So here you had the great power saying, look, this cannot happen. There was a question about the Dominican Republic here. There were those people who were thinking of revolutionary struggles in their own right, who were saying, in one sense, yes, this can happen. Look at Haiti. But then, in another sense, they were saying, it shouldn't happen if we don't want to become Haiti. So the revolutionary struggles that occurred after the Haitian Revolution in the Caribbean Basin and then in Central and South America purported to be a much milder form. They did not seek to have the kinds of revolutionary and reformist intents that the Haitians had intended for their own revolutionary struggle. Slavery might have been allowed. Slavery might have been abolished in milder senses. New senses of land reform that honored Latifundi relationships that were going to become the hallmark of Haitian land tenure policy. Well, those were going to become the hallmarks of what we would see later on as the issue of Haitian inability to do what we think Haitians should do. So those, those become critical dynamics. The closing issue, though, about Haiti needs to fundamentally be this. How does a geopolitical space and its people, who 200 years in their past were, in fact, the most dynamic economic engine of the modern world, that was Haiti. 200 years past, or 200 years ago. How does that dynamic economic engine become, in fact, the basket case of the Western Hemisphere? It's not simply through environmental degradation. It is not simply through shifts in tectonic plates or trade winds or what have you. There is, in fact, a sense of human agency. And before I stop, the thing I want to say is that what I'm intending here is not to think about the Haitians as victims, but to get people to understand the sense of agency and the notion of the way in which different groups of people have colluded in what we see as the Haitian dilemma of the current moment. And to understand that we can't expect to participate 
in the rejuvenation of Haiti without understanding who Haitians are, what they're capable of, and what their history has been. That's an impossibility. It's impossible to do the work that you want to do without, in fact, referencing the baseline. Megan, two questions briefly. What happened to Father Jean Bertrand Aristide, elected president, when he was deposed? The United States flew him to exile in Africa. I heard him speak in Germantown in the 80s or 90s. I admired him very much. What happened? But the other question is um, Kirkpatrick Sale's book, The Discovery of Paradise, published 200 years after Columbus came to the America. The Americas claimed that Columbus was a monster as regards the island of Hispaniola. He discovered that the Taino Indians had gold there. If they did not deliver, I think it was a thimbleful of gold to him every month, he cut off their hands or something like that. And he erected something like 30 or 40 gibbets on the island. You know, people executing one another was unheard of. Is that true of Columbus? Is he part of the horrors of the story? Joe, you know, as a historian, you say you want a short answer, and I'm, I'm a historian, Joe. I don't do that. But I, I, can, I can get away with this, Joe, because I can plead ignorance on both those kinds. I don't know where Jean-Bertrand Aristide is, um, and I do know this about Columbus, okay? Columbus, if Columbus was not a perpetrator of said atrocities, he, and he needn't be, he was the initiator of a process that encourage those kinds of atrocities. And it, it, we, 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 the, history of the, the history of the modern world, you know, I, I could, I, I, I'll deal with the modern world because you guys don't want to really go all the way back with it. But the history of human interaction is a history of atrocity. I mean, that's the reason we sit in rooms like this to try to figure out how to not do these things over and over again. So, we should not be surprised when we, when we hear these kinds of things, but we should be skeptical on the other side when we hear people like Theodore Roosevelt talk about the moral imperative. This is a Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. The moral imperative <coughs> of intervening in the affairs of other people simply because they won't pay their bills. That was the reason that that, um, in fact, Roosevelt argued that we should be going to the Dominican Republic, that, that other side of paradise now, mm -hmm. because the government has said, um, we think that the, the interest rates are too high and that what you charge us for really are shoddy goods and we're not paying. And Roosevelt said, well, you need to pay your bills. So the, the, we, have, we, we, need to, we need to explore those kinds of things. Edwin Goff. McGon Yes. I recently took a cross-country trip with our older son, not mine and yours, but mine. <laughs> uh, I thought you were letting things out for me. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I, no I've, I've spent more of my time wondering, in the cosmological sense, whether it would be more fun to be dark energy or dark matter. Uh, but I took a cross-country trip to visit my sister, I, well, for many reasons, but visited my sister in Chico, California, which is the drinking capital of higher education, Cal State Chico, and 
this was the first opportunity our young, uh, older son had to see and visit with his aunt in 30 years. On that trip, on the way, we talked about many things, but among the things that we talked about as we got closer and closer to modernity and post-modernity was the history within the family of siblings, which he had never heard. Now, he's recently received, this, this was back August 16th through the 24th, now, he is an engaged agent because there's an extended family in Chico. And he's an engaged agent because he heard the stories from the person's baseline. And now has received a letter from my sister, has received a call from my youngest niece, has called my sister, on and on. There is a point to this. I think you made that reference as you were beginning and referring to Frank. There's a point to this. How do we, in this room first, take what has just become indelible within our own frontal cortex of understanding, of seeing relatedness and agency and historical, to anything more than driving where we're driving, sitting where we're sitting, avoiding Starbucks when we can, and believing what you've said is an empowering and a tragic indictment of us, in terms of Western enlightenment. How do we, and I expect that's what the subsequent elements of this workshop will cover, but that appears to me to be the way that you become an agent. And I'm, I'm doing this because that's where my frontal cortex is. <laughs> can, you, can, can you speak to that, the difference between global and local? The difference between communities and extended families and possible intersection of behaviors that are extensions of modeled by the behaviors within extended families. We, you know, your term local and global, the, the, the trite cliche. The local is yeah. the global. Sure. Well, Americans need to need to recognize that in relationship to when they when they in fact interface with different groups of people, but particularly when they interface with people in the Caribbean. Uh, I, I made a, a I gave you I never give throwaways. I mean, but it <laughs> would seem as a throwaway. I, I mentioned um, you know 150 million French francs versus six million dollars. The six million dollars is Louisiana purchase. Louisiana purchased uh, only comes to us because of the efficacy of the Haitian Revolution. Mm -hmm. So, 
the guy, the guy is bankrupt. Napoleon, I'm talking about, is bankrupt. He's literally bankrupt. So he has to get the Americans to, in fact, back his, his suing for peace with 150 million French francs, all right? But then the Americans say, now you can sell us that piece of real estate. And he says, gladly, even though at the moment prior to conceding to that, Napoleon's vision was the reconquest of Haiti, that is, Saint-Domingue, and the reconquest of its American empire along the Mississippi Basin. He's going to take it all away. France would have been from Haiti up the Mississippi to Quebec. And we'd all be speaking French more than likely. Or we'd all be doing with the the, the Quebecois do, we'd be speaking French and English, but more French than English. That was Napoleon's dream. The Haitians changed this, but Americans don't realize that in terms of looking at their own immediate family history. Then one of the things that might come about is to think about some of the things that we hold most dear, and to do that in a contemporary sense. So um, this summer, Crisis in the Gulf. You guys remember that, don't you? Five years ago, crisis in the Gulf. You remember that, don't you? New Orleans, that's the way they say it. My friends, I have friends from New Orleans, okay? Phil DeMoy and Marvin Beaulieu, or as he likes to say it, Beaulieu. Uh, those are not quintessentially Anglo names, all right? The suggestion is that part of that culture is a culture that's from Haitian immigrants. Part of that cuisine, part of that lifestyle, part of what Anglo-America in the 19th century, the early 19th century at the moment of the Louisiana Purchase found so morally abhorrent, the mixing of culture in the Mississippi Basin. French, Spanish, African, Free slave, well, that's part of that Haitian dynamic. So, the anecdote that you gave that was very personal is the kind of really historical anecdote that Americans need to participate in, in terms of thinking about who and what they are, then in engaging people like Haitians. The other thing is this if you think about the success, and I'm using this term deliberately, the success of the Haitian Revolution and the repercussions that that success spawned. France investing 40,000 men, of whom half of which died in attempting to subdue the island. Other European states and the Americans making similar kinds of investments in human and material capital. That's the success of the revolution. To think about the success of the Haitian Revolution is to think about the possibilities of Haitian agency. And then it's to do with one, of, with one of my favorite historians and thinkers says people need to do when they don't have all the pieces fit together. And this is what historians do. You need to engage in a bit of speculation. So what would the world look like? Better yet, let's be modest. What would the Western Hemisphere look like? What would Haiti look like, the Caribbean Basin, 
if in fact we simply honored the notion of Haitian agency as illustrated in Haitian history. Be totally different. Yeah. We'd be a totally different people. Right. So that, that that's part of what that, that's part of the baseline of, of recognizing the power of the people that you are in service with to affect their own change and then honoring their investment with it. This is not exactly a question, it's more of an observation. This semester I'm teaching African American rhetoric and I'm spending a great deal of time thinking and talking about slavery. And so my comment is kind of just more of an observation. And one of the things I'm finding is that in both our majority students and in the African American students sitting in the class, it's a very hard thing to think about. It's a very hard thing to acknowledge. And so I think as I listen, I'm sorry, what's a hard thing to acknowledge? The notion of slavery. Oh. That that one of the things I've been trying to do is to personalize it. I've been using a lot of narratives, I've been using a lot of the talk, a lot of the the, the ways in which families have recognized slavery. But but the reaction, I guess that's one of the things that I'm thinking about right now, is that it's very <clears throat> that we talk about it, but it's a very difficult thing for people to acknowledge. And I find so many, especially my majority students, who want to push away from that. Who you know, you hear all of that statements about, well, that was back then, that's not the way we were now, and or it was even um, I've gone to not to saying you know slaves, but using enslaved Africans, uh, talking about apartheid to kind of bring it up and getting a lot of resistance from the class. And so when I hear your comments and, and uh, you know you're talking about this, this reclaiming, I think part of the reason why it's so hard for us to think about this with Haiti is that we haven't dealt with our own culpability, our national culpability, with the you know what the founding elements of our of this culture, which was the enslavement of these dark bodies from Africa. Well, that's part of it. You could extend that by saying that, that the culpability is the fact that the majority of those dark bodies, as you put it, who come to this space come by way of places by Haiti. They don't come directly to the United States. They don't come directly to American shores. The route takes you through the Caribbean. Africans are in the Caribbean for what is called a period of seasoning. And then from the Caribbean, from places like Haiti and later on Cuba, they're brought into the continental United States or the North, into the North American border. So the culpability is extended in that sense. But, but yes, I mean, um, there, there's, there's a difficulty envisioning slavery, but that, that's that's always been the case, particularly in, in a modern world that has defined itself in terms of certain Lockean parameters. You know, life, liberty, and Thomas Jefferson fudging it, the pursuit of happiness. Locke was pretty clear, okay? Locke was also clear on something else. The people of color were either expendable or they served a great purpose in making property into property. People don't, so so we, we don't read a lot of things. And that's the reason for beginning with, with Reinhardt on the question of historiography. <coughs> the point is, is that there are a lot of blank spaces in the American historical record and in our understanding of political philosophy and therefore our understanding of, political, of the political economy of the hemisphere that spawns places like Haiti and, of course, the American experiment.
Yes. Did you have a question? Yes. Can you recommend further reading? Um, well, here, Paul Farmer. <laughs> Paul Farmer. Read Paul Farmer. It's listed in the okay. in the book. Um, Franklin Knight um, has a, an article in um, gosh, the um, American Historical Review on it's called the Haitian Revolution. Um, there, you know, there are tons of books. C.R.R. James. Um, the, the the Knight article though has a very nice bibliography. Okay, that's for getting started on this. So it's it's a that's a lot of fun. Yes. Um, I had heard, and I'm not sure if it was a reputable source. So you can clarify. Well, you you heard me, and I'm not a reputable <laughs> <Yeah>. source. <laughs> um, that that money that you said that the U.S. Um, uh, wanted Haiti, Haiti to pay France 150 million francs that because they didn't have all the currency that part of that was paid in timber and therefore that's when the deforestation started. That well, that, that's true. That's part of it, but he, here's, it here's, the other, it. here's the other thing that, that it would have been paid in, okay? Um, at the beginning of, at the beginning of the 19th century, France was in fact the richest imperial power in the world. That, that needs, that's a point that needs to be understood. Not Britain, but France. France was only the richest imperial power in the world because of one possession, Haiti. What did Haiti produce? It produced the one thing that is so innocuous to modern life today. Sugar. And all of its offshoots, some of which our students are only too familiar with <laughs> rum, okay? So that was, that was a generator. But also, on the side, timber production, it was there. Coffee, cotton, the very things that made slave economies thrive in the continental, in continental North America. So it was, in fact, the notion that Haitian goods could, in fact, be used in kind to pay off this debt that was had. So, yeah, that's part of what was going on. Yes, Noreen. Um, well, I, I followed you a bit, but I don't know much about Haiti in terms of its history, but why would, what was the purpose of the engineering of the failure of the Haitian society? Why would you, you why, couldn't, what was, You couldn't have, it. you could not have if, in fact, you had, at the beginning of the 19th century, if you look at, look at the Atlantic world, and you look at the Atlantic world from North America, through Central America, through South America, and the Caribbean Basin, this is what you see in terms of the political economy. And the political economy, and the one thing that stands out as the, the biggest anomaly in broad relief in the political economy is Haiti. The political economy of the Atlantic world at the beginning of the 19th century, post-1776, is based on slavery. If you have a state that has said, in effect, through its efforts, through its own agency, that as slaves, we have, in fact, achieved the dream of the Enlightenment, then what does that say for all other slaves who exist in the space? Let me give you an example. 
somewhere around the early part of, uh, of um, the, 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 uh, the, eight, the 19th century, right down the street here in Philadelphia, there was a real severe race riot. It's not the kind of race riots that we think we know in contemporary, you know, senses, you know, where, where most of you folks would be afraid to drive through my neighborhood, okay? It was the other way around. Black people were afraid to come out of their neighborhoods because white Philadelphians had besieged them and all of their institutions. These black people wouldn't stand for it, though. They began to fight back. So they picked up sticks, took out pitchforks, they hurled paving stones. They did all the things that we, that we understand that people who are insurgents do. And then they gave up their rallying, rallying cry. And what was their rallying cry? The thing that frightened whites most in the Western Hemisphere. Remember Santo Domingo. They were shouting that in the streets. Remember Santo Domingo. Remember Haiti. And so the Haitian Revolution from north to south said to a planter society and to everyone who benefited from planter societies, manufacturers in New England, people who built the boats and then profited from the bodies that those boats carried across the Atlantic. All of these people were frightened of the Haitian experiment and understood that that experiment, experiment needed to, in fact, be strangled in its infancy. When was that uprising? Something somewhere like maybe 1816, somewhere thereabouts. Before we thank Magan, I just wanted to mention that in your packet, you do have at least the front page of the article. It was copyright protected, so we couldn't reprint it, but you can access it online, okay? It's 200 Years of Forgetting, Hushing Up the Haitian Revolution by Thomas Reinhardt. So we copied the first page, okay? But please join with me in thanking Magan for his excellent